Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, well, before we were so rudely interrupted last weekend, uh, we have been making our way through the book of 1 Peter. So grab a Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1015. And just as a quick refresher, Peter has written this letter uh, to several groups, churches of Christians uh, scattered across the ancient region of Asia Minor uh, who have been experiencing persecution as a result of their faith in Jesus on top of uh, experiencing the suffering that, that comes just as a result of living in this broken world. And as we get back into our study this morning, Peter is going to begin explaining how our identity as God's people should shape the way that we live our lives before a watching and unbelieving world. And so we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 11. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So last time, Peter finished out the first major section of this letter. He's been encouraging these groups of, of weary, suffering believers by reminding them of their position as God's chosen people and, and of all the benefits that come with that. And he's called them to be characterized by a love for one another and, and to live out their, their identity, their role as God's new covenant temple by making spiritual sacrifices and, and proclaiming God's excellencies to the world around them. And now as we pick up again here in verse 11, Peter turns to address some specific ways that we should live our lives as God's people. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Right, now, the, the term beloved serves to remind these believers of the common bond that they share with Peter as brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, and also uh, to, to reassure them in the midst of their chaos and confusion that what he is writing to them here is for their good. Right, these people are dear to Peter, and, and he is pointing them in the right direction. And we see that he appeals to them here on the basis of their identity as sojourners and exiles. And we saw back in week one that those terms refer to people who for any number of reasons are living in an area that is not their, their true home, where they truly belong. All right, and as Christians, we are spiritual exiles. To keep with the imagery that we saw a couple of weeks ago, as we come to faith in Christ, we are given a, a, a new identity as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And because of that, this world is no longer our true home, and, and we live with this certain sense of being out of place here until we, uh, while we wait for Jesus to come back and finish what he has started. 
And so it's, it's as those who no longer belong in the world that Peter calls us to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Uh, the word flesh can have a couple of different meanings. On the one hand, it can simply refer to our, our physical bodies, our skin and muscle and bones. But the more theological meaning, which is what Peter means here, re- refers to that which is characterized by our sinful nature. Right? And so Peter is, is referring to uh, the passions of the flesh as sinful desires and motivation. So if you remember back to chapter 1, verse 14, uh, we, uh, Peter referred to the passions of our former ignorance. And we said that, that because we are spiritually blind by nature, we do not know who God is. And because we don't know who God is, we search for meaning and significance and satisfaction in, in any number of other things, whether it be money or pleasure or popularity. Right? There, are, there are all kinds of behaviors and activities that may look good, or they may feel good, or they may seem to work for a certain time, but that ultimately are destructive, both for our lives and the lives of those around us. All right? And so uh, that's what Peter is, is talking about here, whether it be uh, anger or lust or greed or, or gluttony or anything else that God's Word identifies in this way. That's what Peter's talking about. And so here's the deal. As Christians, even though our hearts have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we've been made new, we've not yet been made perfect. And so old habits die hard. We're still capable of being deceived at times. And especially in the midst of difficulty, the temptation to turn to things other than God can be very powerful. And so Peter calls us to abstain from these things. And the idea is that we should stay far away from them, have absolutely nothing to do with them. And the the importance of this is highlighted at the end of verse 11, when Peter says that these sins wage war against our souls. We have to understand that this is not a game. These, These passions are strong, and they have the potential to destroy us if we fail to control them and allow them to control us. We can't play with fire and expect not to get burned. If we give sin an opportunity in our lives, it will begin to dominate, so we must actively fight against it. But then as we look at verse 12, Peter goes a step further when he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, we've already established that many, if not most, of Peter's original readers uh, were ethnically Gentile, meaning that they were not Jewish. And so when Peter refers to Gentiles here, we understand that he's not using that term literally, but, but again, more theologically to refer to those who are outside the people of God, those who have not believed the gospel. And so one of the main reasons why we need to abstain from the passions of our flesh is so that our conduct is honorable in the the sight of the world around us. We're reminded here that the way we live our lives either gives credibility to the gospel or it discredits the gospel. If, If we say that we follow Jesus and yet we live in open contradiction to that claim, then the world has has no reason at all to believe that what we say is true. But even more to the point here, 
Peter says that the quality of our conduct is especially important as the world accuses us of being evildoers. And so from the very beginning, Christianity and and Christians have been viewed negatively by the outside world. Pretty much any time someone doesn't conform to to social norms and, and stands out in different ways, they tend to be targeted for harassment. And that was certainly true for the early church. Uh, among other things, the early church was, was accused of being cannibals, uh, of being morally depraved, uh, of being atheists even, political instigators, and all of these accusations made them targets of persecution, which again, some of Peter's first readers were already experiencing. And over the centuries, as in virtually every area of the world, as the gospel has, has advanced, Christians have often found themselves on the wrong end of the popularity spectrum among those from the outside world and have experienced rejection and opposition as a result of their commitment to Christ. And even in our own context today, while we do not experience persecution proper, Christians are increasingly seen as as judgmental and as bigoted and as as people whose beliefs have no place in in a modern society. And so because of this, it is all the more important that Christians be good people. And and when I say good people, I I don't mean what has commonly been understood as good over the last hundred years or so. so. Christians don't smoke, and and they don't drink, and they don't say bad words, and and they don't dance. Some of those things may be included. But, But what I mean is that Christians should be good people. That that when the world looks at us, they should see people who are responsible and trustworthy. People who are are characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, by by love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In other words, our our character should be like spiritual Teflon. People can accuse us of of evil if they want to, but, but it just doesn't stick because our character is, is, uh, is good, right? And Peter says that inasmuch that is the case, while the world may accuse us of doing evil now, they will glorify God because of us on the day of judgment, what he refers to as the day of visitation. So what on earth does that mean? Well, it's not entirely clear what Peter means by that, but there are a couple of options. And on the one hand, it, it could be that Peter is referring to the fact uh, that some people may come to faith themselves as they see how the gospel transforms those who believe it. Right? As, as, as people uh, may initially suspect Christians of being immoral in different ways, the Lord can use the consistent testimony of our lives to draw other people to the gospel as well. And so on the day of judgment, those people will glorify God because of us. On the other hand, the phrase give glory to God can can also be used in a a judicial sense uh, to essentially mean tell the truth or or confess. We see that in the Bible at least a couple of times. And we know that the Apostle Paul makes it clear that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And certainly that includes people who have rejected him in this life. They will eventually acknowledge the truth about who Jesus is. And so it could also be that while the world accuses us falsely of evil now, 
our consistent lifestyle will serve as evidence against them as they stand before the Lord on Judgment Day. And they will give glory to God or confess the truth uh, when it comes to that point. And so without more specific definition in the verse, I think we can actually understand this in both ways. That on the Day of Judgment, there will be some people who glorify God for the salvation they received in part because of the testimony of, our, of believers' lives, and others will give glory to God by acknowledging and confessing the truth that believers consistently testified to in their lifestyles. And so we see that it is vitally important for us to fight against the sinful passions of our, of our flesh and to live honorably in the sight of the world. And now Peter's going to get into specifics, specific ways that this looks like as we pick up again beginning in verse 13. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And so as we pick up again here in verse 13, Peter moves on to address specific ways of what it looks like for us to conduct ourselves honorably in the eyes of the world around us. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And so honorable conduct among outsiders looks like being subject to or submitting ourselves to governing authorities. All right? Peter specifies the, the emperor or governors who are serving under him. And so in the ancient world, for all practical purposes, there was one world government. You had the, the Roman emperor at the top, and then you had regional governors who served uh, under him, and then you had officials uh, lower than that on a, on a local level. And Peter indicates here that all of them are worthy of our submission for the Lord's sake, meaning that, that we do this because the Lord expects this of us. And the reason is, is given in verse 15. Peter says, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So in, in the ancient world, uh, religion was used often as, as a unifying principle that kept everybody together on the same team. And so Christians who refused to, to worship the false gods of the Roman Empire and, and who actively encouraged to persuade other people to worship Jesus were, were seen as a threat that was destabilizing to the empire, and they were looked at with, with great suspicion and sometimes with intense hatred. And, and so the idea here is that Christians should be model citizens in every way. Right? We, we pay our taxes, we obey the law, we are respectful of authority, so that again, while some people may accuse us of insurrection or rebellion, it's clear that we follow the governing authorities as well or better than anyone else. And then in verse 16, Peter says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And personally, I find that to be something of a confusing statement. 
right? How, how can you be subject to somebody and yet also free at the same time? Those seem to be a contradiction. Uh, I think John Piper is on to something when he connects this statement to a conversation that Peter has with Jesus in Matthew chapter 17. And so in Matthew chapter 17, uh, Peter is confronted by some people about paying taxes. And then later on, Jesus comes up to him and he asks him a question. He says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he had said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. All right, and so Jesus here, as the Son of God, indicates that he is not under any human earthly governing authority. He stands above all earthly powers, and yet, at the same time, uh, he submits to the earthly law that was present in the Roman Empire. And I think the point here is exactly the same thing for us. Again, God is over every earthly power. God is not subject to anybody. He is in control of all things. And, And because we have been adopted as his children through faith in Jesus, and in a very real sense, that means that we now have a status that is above every human authority, every governing authority, right? We are sons and daughters of the King of Kings and the Lord of all lords. And yet, uh, and, so, and so in that sense, we are free. And yet, Peter, while wanting us to understand that, at the same time recognizes, as Jesus did in the passage that I just read, that the rulers of this world have been given divine sanction to rule and to govern. And therefore, it is right for us to submit to them, and not to do so would be evil or sin. Now, I want to take a few moments to draw this out a little bit, because I think there are particular challenges that we face in obeying these commands as Americans, right? Because unlike most nations throughout human history, we have the opportunity to participate in the political process. We have the right to vote and to select our own uh, human leaders. Most people have never had that opportunity. Uh, They are born into a world where someone is in control, and that person is in control until they die or they're overthrown by somebody else. But that's not the case for us, and our right to choose our own leaders, I think, gives us a unique temptation to become competitive when it comes to making sure that our candidate gets elected and the other candidate loses. And if if we do not like a particular politician, we feel a certain freedom to speak or to act disrespectfully towards them. And, And you know that I hate to be a party pooper, but I have to tell you that Peter does not allow for that here. Peter does not allow for us to act disrespectfully towards governing leaders. Submitting to government authorities requires us to be respectful towards them, to honor them, as we'll get to in just a moment. Now, the number one objection that you get when you start talking about this is when people say, but I don't agree with that governing authority on this particular issue or that particular topic. Obviously, you can't expect me to submit to something I don't agree with. And so it's always important for us to be reminded and clarify that that actually 
you can't submit to somebody unless you disagree with them. Right? You can't submit to somebody unless you disagree with them. Right? It's not submission if you agree. That's called agreement. Right? The concept of submission assumes that you do not agree, but that you are going to yield to this other person anyway. Right? Like if someone tells me, hey, Travis, I think you should eat another piece of chocolate cake. I can't truly say, you know what? I like the way you think. I'm going to submit to you. Right? That's not how this works. But, but if my doctor tells me, you know, Travis, you really need to stop eating so much chocolate cake. Well, I may not like that. I may not want to do that. But because of who my doctor is and because of the expertise he has, it's important for me to submit to what he says and to follow his advice. And so to be clear, to be very clear, disagreeing with government authorities does not get us around the, com the command to submit to them. It is actually at the very heart of what Peter is calling us to do here. Now, of course, as we say this, it's always important to throw in the caveat that we are not talking about absolute submission, right? Our, our highest allegiance and authority is always to God. And so if we are ever in a position where obeying a human authority would require us to disobey a clear command of God, then it is right for us not to submit to them in that case. Right? Keep in mind that the Peter who is calling us to submit to governing authorities is the same Peter who refused to stop preaching the gospel and who told the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than men. Right? And so as our society becomes increasingly hostile towards Christianity, we may find ourselves there eventually, but unless a human authority requires us to do something that is a clear violation of God's will, as we understand it according to his word, then we are called to submit to them. So, question, can Christians be politically active? Absolutely. But the way Christians engage in politics should be distinct from the way that the rest of the world engages in politics. All right, while, while the world fights dirty, and slings mud and punches below the belt, Christians should be respectful and substantive in our engagement. Right, by all means, we can share our views and opinions on the relevant issues, but we need to keep our focus there. Right, it's perfectly okay to say, I think this is a good policy, and this is why I think this is a good policy, and I want to invite you to join me in voting for this policy. Or you can even say, I don't agree with this candidate. I don't think that this candidate is going to accomplish uh, what, what is needed for the common good. And this is why I think that. And I invite you to join me in not voting for this candidate. What we can't do is call people names or post unflattering pictures to embarrass them on Facebook or, or continue to spread unsubstantiated rumors about them or assume false motives about them. So we need to be careful to guard what we say and what we post on social media. Again, the world is watching. And so to summarize, when it comes to our country's leaders, you don't have to like them, you don't have to agree with them, you don't have to vote for them. You can argue and campaign against them, but you do have to submit to them, and whatever you do, you must not do anything to dishonor either the person or their office. And this is all the more important for us as 
As primary election season is beginning to to warm up, people are declaring their candidacy for different offices, and people are starting to do their opposition research to figure out ways of discrediting them in the public eye. It's very easy to get caught up in that and begin participating in it if we're not careful. But it would be better for us not to engage at all than to engage in a way that is disobedient to what the Lord has called us to. Church, don't forget that this entire letter of 1 Peter is founded on the fact that this world is not our home and that our hope is not in this life. And so we must not begin to act as if it is. What Peter is saying here, if I I could say it even more provocatively, is that to dishonor a governing authority is to dishonor the Lord in disobedience. And so we need to keep that in mind over the next year or so, forever, really, because there's always new elections, but especially over the next year or so. Then as he finishes the section, verse 17, Peter gives four direct commands. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And so just quickly, the the first command to honor everyone means that, that we should treat everyone as they deserve to be treated, right? Every single person, no matter who they are, has been made in the image of God and has dignity and value simply because of that fact. And so they are worthy of respect and honor in our interactions with them. And secondly, he calls us to love the brotherhood. And this is yet another reminder of the fact that the membership of the church should be characterized by a sacrificial commitment to the good of one another. We should should do good to everyone as we have the opportunity, but we have a particular responsibility towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. Then Peter calls us to fear God. As we've already discussed previously, fearing God is the primary way that the Bible uses to refer to someone who has a right relationship with God that that is characterized by a healthy reverence and respect for who he is as our ultimate authority, and as the only one who is worthy of worship and devotion. And finally, Peter calls us specifically to honor the emperor. And and keep in mind, as as we process all this, that for the early church, the emperor may be someone who wants you dead. The emperor may be someone who is actively initiating persecution against you, and yet Peter still calls the, the early church to show him proper honor, which again translates for us to our country's leaders. All right, and so this is the first way that we're called to live out our lives as God's people, and we're going to continue to look at this more as we move forward in the letter. But in our passage this morning, Peter begins to explain what it looks like specifically for us to live our lives out as God's new covenant people. We, We need to abstain from sinful passions as we conduct ourselves honorably in the light of, of a watching, unbelieving world. And the first way we do that is by submitting ourselves to governing authorities. And so as we take time this morning to reflect on this, it's worth asking the question, how are you doing with this? How are you doing with this? Is there an area of your life where you are not abstaining from sinful passions and opening yourself up to the destructive effects of it in your life? What does your political engagement look like? When the world looks at you, do they see an accurate representation of what it looks like to follow Jesus? Or are there some specific areas that you could take time this morning to confess and repent of? 
as we consider that, may the Lord give us the grace we need to fulfill his calling as his people. Let's pray together.